0: I've never visited a baby in the hospital before. We were in Harlem at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital. It was December, 2019. My mom and I went to see her best friend, Viora, who just had a baby girl. We stood in line and waited for our turn at the front desk. When we were called, a security guard scanned our driver's licenses and took headshots for temporary paper IDs. These IDs had to stay clipped to our collars, facing forward, for the entire visit. After an elevator ride to the seventh-floor nursery, our IDs were checked again by a nurse who would ask us for the family's last name. We're here for baby Leighton Robinson, first name Eden, is what my mom said. We were told that only one person at a time could go to the back and see the babies. Fiora showed proof that she was Baby Eden's mom, and my mom told me to go ahead and see her first. Before we even reached the back, a nurse had to buzz us in through two doors from the other side. It didn't feel like I was going to see a baby. It felt like a maximum security prison for infants. I'm Rachel Pilgrim. And
1: I'm Elise Manukian. This is Shoe Leather an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. In Season 1, we look at New York City in the 90s. This is The Baby Napping.
0: That hospital visit stayed with me. I wondered why there was so much security for babies. What or who were they protecting them from? Suddenly, we were knee-deep in research about baby nappings and stolen baby paranoia. A woman dressed as a nurse, police saying she tried to steal an infant from the maternity ward.
2: The woman she thought was her mom is instead allegedly her kidnapper. Police say she was armed with only a visitor's pass when
0: she made a beeline for the maternity ward. At just 19 days old, she was snatched out of her hospital crib by a stranger. I'm pretty sure my search history alerted some government officials.
1: It's a jarring intrusion into an otherwise peaceful scene. Baby snapping, mom snapping, Baby nappers making a beeline for the maternity ward, holding up their visiting badges like weapons. Over the past decade, this bizarre crime has become much more infrequent. But in the years 1987, 88, and 89, there were 10 infant abductions from hospitals per
0: year. I found one story about a baby named Stephen Earl Pender. He was kidnapped from a hospital nursery in Brooklyn in 1990, So Elise and I dove into this case, digging up recent history to try and answer the question, why would someone steal a baby? Wake up! up. In 1990, Bedford Stuyvesant was the backdrop of some of our favorite moments in pop culture. Spike Lee's Do The Right Thing gives us a glimpse of the streets that Notorious B.I.G. raps about in his songs. It was before the neighborhood was gentrified, before there were bars and nightlife. Back then, on streets like Kingston Ave, people came to buy handmade jewelry and visit the sidewalks lined with vendors selling from their little storefronts. It's where baby Steven was born, at the Interfaith Medical Center near the corner of Kingston and Atlantic Avenue on February 1st, 1990. And just two days later, It's where his new little life would make big headlines.
1: It's Saturday, February 3rd, 1990, around 3 p.m. A woman in her 20s gets into the elevator in the lobby of St. John's and rides up to the eighth floor maternity ward. She spies the group of new moms standing at the nursery window and talks to all of them. She meets a young woman named Kathy Pender. Kathy is 18. She has dark, gentle eyes, and she tells the woman that she's just had her first child. She named the baby Steven, after his father. The young woman tells Kathy she has two kids of her own and asks her to point out the baby. She tells Kathy over and over, he's so adorable. She even finds Kathy alone in her room later, to say she'll be
0: back on Sunday with a brand new outfit for the two-day-old boy. Her name is Maria Quinones. She has long black braids and a beauty mark in the center of her forehead. She's wearing gold earrings, a stud in her nose, and a multicolored kufi hat. And she's wearing one of those long, black, goose-down coats. Around 4.30 that afternoon, Kathy is catching up with friends in the maternity lounge when she sees Maria walking out the door and into the elevator with something tucked under her coat. That thing is baby Steven. That night, one of Kathy's friends notices Steven is missing from the nursery. When Kathy asks the nurse why the baby has been moved, the nurse slams the door in her face. It's not until the next morning before feeding time that the same nurse tells Kathy the truth. The nurse put the baby in the wrong woman's hands. We
1: don't know why the nurse slammed the door in Kathy's face. She might have just been panicked. After all, there was a missing baby on her watch. But looking back, Rachel and
0: I wondered if there's something else going on. Remember, Kathy is 18. She's black, a teen mom who's just had a baby, and all of a sudden, that baby's gone. When she asks the nurses where her son is, according to a New York Times article, the nurses dismiss her.
1: The article didn't go into this, but it feels like there's a power imbalance here. Racial disparities in healthcare have been well-established, especially for Black maternity patients.
0: They are also more likely to experience barriers to quality healthcare, according to multiple studies done by the Center for Disease Control, the National Institute of Health, and the Harvard School of Public Health. These studies establish
1: what Black women know all too well, which is that when expressing pain or discomfort in a medical setting, legitimate health and safety concerns are often dismissed. From the beginning, we wondered how Kathy's race and age impacted the way she was treated in the hospital. Our story isn't about the moment the door was slammed in her face. It's about the ones right before and after. But they're connected, in ways that are clear to us 30 years later, and in that moment, were probably obvious to
0: Kathy. One day after Maria vanished with the baby under her coat, Officers find her walking down a nearby street, baby Steven still clutched to her chest. She asks the arresting officers to tell the baby's mother that she's sorry. She says she recently miscarried her own child and was suffering from postpartum depression. The arresting officer notes Maria's appearance in his report. Under notable characteristics, he wrote, unusual eyes.
1: On February 5th, 1990, two police officers march Maria through the station in full view of the press. The perp walk is a ritual I had only seen for high-profile criminal cases, the John Gottis, the Dominique Strauss kahns This video was the only footage we found of Maria Quiñones. Some of the photographers even jump in front of the camera for their chance to snap a shot of the baby napper. We watched to see what her arresting officer saw, her unusual eyes. But instead, we just saw her wincing in pain, maybe from the handcuffs, maybe from the flashbulbs going off in her face. She's wearing her black winter coat. Why did Maria kidnap baby Stephen that day? We knew the only way to find out would be to ask her ourselves. But first, we'd have to find her. We started our search at the courthouse. First, we went to Tweed Courthouse downtown.
0: I'm so. I working on a podcast, and we're trying to locate like court records on someone. Not here. Not here. Okay, no. What it's are we? The
1: Department of Education. We had a false start. It does say DOE right on this. But the lady Hello, sitting at the front desk of the Hello. Department of Education helped us find the county clerk's office.
0: But when we got to the real courthouse, there was another problem. The clerk tells us that there was a fire in 2015. It destroyed over 85,000 boxes of records. The clerk was this beautiful older
1: woman with a thick Brooklyn accent, standing in this room filled with rows and rows of colorful files. She tells us our chance of getting our file is slim. 88, a good year, she says. 89, a bad year. The 90s, very bad years. She said that some records had been salvaged, so we held out
0: for a glimmer of hope. Two weeks later... I get a phone call from the clerk, and she tells me, your records have perished. She said it just like that, perished. There's one document that did get us closer to Maria, her arrest report. Now, the officers at the 81st precincts were not exactly keen to talk to us about crimes from 30 years ago, but luckily we had the law on our side. We filed a Freedom of Information law request with the New York Police Department. It allows us access to public records like police reports on arrests.
1: The police report told us where Maria lived at the time. We end up retracing her steps, starting from the hospital.
0: The original St. John's entrance is a beautiful Victorian brick building with a stone face, but we couldn't get in, the doors were locked. We walked around a giant parking lot to the entrance of the Interfaith Medical Center on Atlantic Ave. It's a concrete block of a building with a revolving door and a dimly lit lobby. In this kind of setting, you just have to try your best to help. So how long have you been working here? I've been working here for five years. The receptionist was young, sweet, and excited to talk to us about her job. She told us the hospital has an open door policy for its community. Two uniformed security officers guarded the elevator. There's not a lot of wiggle room. It's a pretty small hallway but we made it past them. We wondered if we could take a ride to the eighth floor where the nursery was 30 years ago. I
1: wonder if we could just go up to the eighth floor right now. <laughs> I also someone.
0: We didn't have the brazen confidence of our baby napper. Instead, we leave and take the same walk that Maria Quinones would have taken 30 years ago. We took a right down Atlantic Ave and then another left turn at the end of the block. It was a windy, sunny day in bedside. People were outside playing music. An ice cream truck rolled down the street. We passed by a school, a
1: big church. The whole walk took 15 minutes.
0: We're looking at where... we, we arrived on the corner of St John's and Kingston Ave. It's a two-story apartment building next to the Payomatic, a check-cashing place. two
1: fifty-four. Wow, there it is. All right, let's do this. Oh,
0: dang, it doesn't
1: make an audible like sound. I know, that would've been so nice. Should we just push New York style, just hit all the doorbells? That yes, was, someone might answer
0: the door. Somebody might answer the door. There's one more bell. We talked to a few neighbors and no one seems to remember a Maria who lived here in 1990. I keep thinking about how Kathy Pender remembered Maria popping in to say, I'll be back with an outfit for the baby. You'd
1: think people would remember someone like that. But the neighborhood has changed a lot, so we hit the phone book. You have reached a number that It is turns out there are hundreds of Please Maria Quinonez's in New York. Perfect. We looked for any other record on her that might exist, including property records for the apartment in case we could track down a super or landlord. Instead, all we found was an obituary of the man who owned the apartment building in 1990. Here's where we went down a rabbit hole. The New York City Birth Index lists two women named Maria Quinones born in the same year as the one listed on her police report, even though neither of the days or months matched. But one of them was born in Brooklyn. Could she be our Maria? In the New York inmate search, the right Maria is listed with a different birth year, but the same month and day as the ones she gave at the police station. We were shocked. Her records had been so mismanaged, like totally bungled. One bureaucratic agency said she was older, one said she was younger, and one lost all of her court documents in a fire. None of them could tell us anything useful about her, who she was, why she stole a baby, whether or not she ever had one of her own. As far as New York State public records go, Maria Quinones vanished the day she was released from prison. Maybe that was enough of the system for her, and she lived the rest of her life not wanting
0: to be found. We didn't have any answers about Maria yet, but it turns out we aren't the only ones interested in baby kidnappings.
2: I began the whole study of child kidnapping in the United States because I became a parent in the height of the panic around child abduction.
1: This is Paula Fass, a history professor emerita at UC Berkeley.
2: My I daughter I was born in 1981. My son was born in 1987. And the, the mid 80s was this period of incredibly heightened alarm that in many ways was fed by the media and I was a parent caught in that hysteria. In
1: 1997, Paula wrote a book called Kidnapped. It's about why child abductions terrorized the American cultural imagination. She wrote about the Lindbergh baby.
3: Tragedy struck the lives of renowned Charles and Anne Morrow Lindbergh when their infant son was kidnapped from their Hopewell, New Jersey home and found slain. The crime set off a frantic manhunt and led to one of the most spectacular trials in national
0: history.
1: But this was a special case. The Lindbergh baby was kidnapped for money. Paula also wrote about a baby named Robert Marcus. He was kidnapped in 1955 from the nursery of a San Francisco hospital, two days after his birth.
2: Well, everybody was stunned. They had not experienced a case of that kind in in their own recent memory. And people were obviously extremely sympathetic.
1: The baby's mother, Hannah Marcus, was a Holocaust survivor. This was a time when Jewish people in the U.S. were often viewed with suspicion, as outsiders, but the public felt for Mrs. Marcus. And then, there was the kidnapper.
2: Her name was Betty Jean Benedetto. She was married to an older man. She herself was 27 years old and was unable to have children.
1: Benedetto posed as a nurse to take the Marcus baby.
2: And in fact, she forged a birth certificate for this baby.
1: The police search for Robert Marcus and his kidnapper was the largest manhunt in San Francisco history. They went house to house, searching for baby Robert. News of the baby's disappearance traveled throughout the state.
2: The baby was eventually returned by a priest who had heard about this childhood, happened to hear from the sheriff's department in Stockton that they had seen uh, Benedicta with uh, a baby at a a prize fight, believe it or not
1: a priest at a prize fight. It was divine intervention.
2: So the baby was returned quite successfully and it was a happy ending for the, for the Marcus family. Betty Jean, however, was convicted of a crime and she was described as being psychotic. And her psychosis was described as having been induced by a kind of baby hunger which resulted in her not being able to tell the difference between what was right and what was wrong, stealing the child for herself.
1: As Paula investigated the Marcus case and other infant abductions by women, she found similar descriptions going back to the 1920s. These women were described as extreme, deviant, and unable to have normal relationships or desires. They were baby hungry.
2: It was assumed that women always want to have children. I should tell you one more very interesting fact. I got a letter from Robert Marcus telling me about what happened to his family and about his life.
1: That's amazing.
2: Um, that, it was amazing. And it, it's quite a remarkable and, for me, very satisfying resolution of this story. He clearly was not affected by it. And the family was not affected by it. It was a, a terrific ending to this particular story, which, unfortunately, doesn't always have terrific endings because not all these children are actually returned.
1: Between 1964 and 2019, there were 327 total infant abductions from the United States. The majority of these babies were taken from hospitals. Where do we get this number? By asking the first person to ever sit down and count them.
3: Where do you go right this minute to get a library book?
1: John Robin is an Infant Abduction Specialist for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children.
2: Well, uh, in non-coronavirus times, I would say the library.
3: Yeah, okay, that'd be good. So, where would you go right this minute to get a newborn baby? The
1: hospital. That's
3: exactly it. As if it's the lending library.
1: Let's back up a bit to the first moment these crimes were brought to John's attention. It was 1987. John was working in child welfare when a producer from 60 Minutes called him up and asked him about infant abductions. This was before law enforcement had started using data to track crimes, so there wasn't a lot of information out there. John and the producer began searching newspapers. He found a surprising pattern in these stories.
3: I'm looking for where do I see the same word other than baby in each uh, little article. And it was like everything was she.
1: In each of these stories, the kidnapper was a woman.
3: It it did kind of amuse us later about how many assumptions we had that uh, were just absolutely zero. This is a childless female and she's now desperate to have one. Nope. To over the 95% level, this woman not only is not childless; she may have had one to four different children.
1: John eventually began tracing these newspaper stories to their characters, to the mothers, the hospital staff, and even the baby nappers. He realized that even though baby nappings happen pretty infrequently, it's a crime with a huge impact.
3: We now know that there are I mean, a whole series of victims in these cases. Uh, it's not just mom who's horribly victimized.
1: Nurses are impacted too. They have to go back to work the next day to a crime scene.
3: Nurses... I mean, they love these babies, so it's not a matter they don't care and they're looking the other way, and, oh, yeah, if you want one, take one, you know, that stuff. No, hardly. Well, then how does this woman get on the unit and get off of it? Well, now think about it. She already has the resume stuffer of Mother, and she will know Mother's first name. Just stick your head in the door and you say, oh, your baby is just darling mom doesn't know who the woman is but she just complimented my baby and yay well you want to take a closer look oh yeah wham now she's in she never tells the mother she's a nurse which i find fascinating and i think the reason is if you're running a con game you don't want to throw something out there that would be really easy to catch and prove wrong
2: do this if it's not okay if it's not to have a child of their
3: own one reason and the reason is him
1: every time john interviewed the him he heard the same story
3: one morning at breakfast says i love to stylize it he's fixed to go to work she says
1: oh you know i was
3: at my doctor yesterday and he probably didn't even put the paper down but anyway, any rate she says and guess what i'm having your baby Now, her assessment of him is incredibly good. Her reading of this
1: guy is spot on. Oh, we'll have to get married now. That would give her nine months to figure out the rest.
3: We had one in in the Tampa area of Florida. Oh, about 15 years ago, this lady was pregnant for 11 months. Either they do it different in Florida, which, (laughs) you know, you never know. Or this guy's an idiot. Yeah, I'll take that one.
1: This fit with what Paula told us about Betty Jean, but seemed far off from the case of baby Steven. The NYPD spokeswoman at the time said Maria Quinones was disturbed, and the Times reported she had had a miscarriage, and told police she suffered from postpartum depression.
3: This is not a psychiatric case. Now, every one of them, when they go to trial, try to use that.
2: You don't believe Maria Quinones when she says she had a
3: miscarriage? No, I don't. Not at all. look at it practically from the court point of view.
1: John said most women who are charged with infant abduction indicate that they've lost a baby or can't have one. The reporter from The Times did write that St. Johns was unable to confirm that Maria had been treated for a miscarriage, but she might have gone somewhere else, or she might not have gotten medical treatment at all. With all due respect to John and his work, our conversation made me miss our main character even more. After all of our searching, after scouring Brooklyn and the internet for her shadow, I didn't want to believe the explanation. She stole a baby to get attention? From a man? So we spoke with Dr. Nurmaljeet Dami, an expert in postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. Dr. Dami didn't buy the theory that Maria stole the baby for someone else because she works with women like Maria every day.
4: And I have worked with some patients like that, and they are not crazy. They are just struggling, and I think our healthcare system
1: really fails them. Dr. Dhammi's specialty is the relationship between women's mental health and motherhood. She says the impact of medical conditions like postpartum depression and miscarriages are often misunderstood. And you have to give them
4: enough room to be able to talk to you safely, yet be able to feel their feelings and deal with their losses.
1: Here's the Times' last word on Maria. Ms. Quiñones expressed much remorse and asked the police to apologize to the baby's mother.
4: For this person, she wanted to have a baby
1: and the trauma started from there. I asked Dr. Dami what she would say to Maria if she got a chance to speak with her. She said first she would ask her about her life and try to build a rapport.
4: But eventually, I would be very interested in understanding the traumatic background.
1: And then what,
4: in her mind, was her understanding of why she did what she did. And also, I would say, it's okay for her to not know. We may never know why she did what she did. And that's
1: okay, too. We'll never know what went through her mind when she walked into the hospital that day. We only know that Maria served two years, six months, and 16 days at Bayview Correctional Facility in Manhattan for the kidnapping of baby Stephen. There are four million babies born each year in the United States. Thanks to John Rabin, hospitals now have better security and a protocol for what to do if a baby is taken. It's called a code pink, and basically it means block the doors. And it's working. A baby hasn't gone missing from a hospital since 2015. There's one last thing about baby nappings that I can't get out of my head. Remember when John told us about the 327 missing baby cases? Well, 15 of those cases were never solved. John remembers the case of Carlina White, who was stolen from a Harlem hospital as an infant and connected the dots on her own as an adult when she realized her birth certificate was fake. Sometimes, formerly missing infants are even able to reconnect with their biological families. But what haunts me is that there are at least 15 people out there who have never found themselves. They don't even know that they're missing.
0: Hi Steven, this is Rachel. There's something we haven't told you. Since I first read about this story, I've been on a mission to find baby Steven. Who by now should probably be referred to as grown Stephen, since he turned 30 years old in February 2020. Rachel's search has been interesting. It started with the news articles. I realized pretty early on that Stephen's full name had been different in the stories we read. He was Stephen Earl Pender in one, Stephen Pender Lyons in another. One article referred to the family as Penda. I found exactly one Facebook page for a Stephen Earl Pender. He had the right birthday, lived in Brooklyn, but he was last active on this page in 2013. Stephen was Facebook friends with a few people with the last name Lyons, his father's last name. So I reached out to as many of them as I could find while Elise did some investigation on his mom, Kathy.
1: From the pictures he posted of his mom, we wondered whether she had passed away. His cover photo on this account is a picture of a picture of her. It's a little faded and propped up against a few bottles of liquor, but it's clearly Kathy. She's young and smiling at the photographer. The photo is leaning against, but not inside a picture frame, as if someone had just taken it out for a closer look.
0: So we weren't surprised when Elise found a record of Kathy's death in 2013. Eventually, I tracked down one of Stephen's cousins. He told us a lot of sad things about Stephen and his family. He also said that Stephen had a new Facebook page, and after a few weeks of talking, he put us in a group chat with him. Stephen never responded in the chat. It's 4.41 in the morning. After two months of radio silence. I have a message from Stephen. It just says 8 a.m. Sent at 3.59 a.m. I took that as a sign that Stephen was down for a morning chat. Okay, it's 8 a.m.
2: Hey, what's up? How are you?
0: Finally, Stephen says he'll tell his story.
2: Well, I don't remember nothing.
0: He had some of the same details as the New York Times story.
2: What was told to me was uh, I was abducted by some lady named Maria Quernones. I guess she had a miscarriage that
0: day. Stephen said as a little boy, he was very close to his mother.
2: I was mama, but wherever she went, I was.
0: He remembers Kathy being fiercely protective of him.
2: Yes, she won't let nobody else hold me.
0: But Kathy had demons. She struggled with her own trauma and turned to substance abuse to cope. Stephen and his three younger siblings were taken from their mom by social services when Stephen was seven. They were eventually reunited when Stephen was a little bit older, but he and Kathy struggled to rebuild their relationship. After a long struggle with her health, Kathy died at 41. About three years ago, Stephen posted the same New York Times article that we had found about his kidnapping on Facebook.
2: And three, four days later, I get a, a email and it says, hey, uh, I think I'm the detective that was assigned to your case.
0: A detective sent him pictures of a daily news article, yellowed by Time. Stephen made the front page. The picture of rescued Stephen shows a yawning, skinny baby no bigger than the teddy bear in Kathy's other arm. Next to him is a bloodhound with drooping ears and a super-sniffing nose. Elise and I could never figure out how they picked out Maria as the kidnapper. But now we knew, according to that newspaper story, that a police dog named Sherlock followed the scent of Maria's coat to baby Stephen. Stephen mentioned that he wants to write a book about his life. He wants to be in control of writing his own story. Elise and I kept thinking about what Paula Fast said about the Marcus baby. Sometimes these stories have happy endings, depending on where you decide to stop telling it. For us, the ending was just Stephen's beginning. Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Rachel Pilgrim, and me, Elise Manukian.
1: Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Dale Maharidge is our co professor. Keshav Pandya
0: is our technical advisor. Special thanks to Columbia Journalism Librarian Christina Williams, Columbia Digital Librarian Michelle Wilson, Peter Lender from Gimlet Media, Rachel Quester from The Daily. Emily Martinez and David Bloom from Audible. Susan White from Garage Media.
1: Madeline Barron and Samara Friedmark from American Public Media, In the Dark. Nate DiMeo from The Memory Palace. Jonathan Hirsch from Neon Hum Media. Clint Schaff from the LA Times Studios. And to Stuart Carl for his legal advice. And thanks to Julia White for being a sounding board. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Duran Zunez, and Camille Miller all other music by blue dot sessions.
0: For more about this episode and shoe leather, go to our website shoeleather.org. To stay up to date on the latest shoe leather happenings, follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at facebook.com/shoeleathercast and on Instagram and Twitter at cast.